The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, podcast listeners, Benjamin Wittes here. You may have noticed recently something that we have not had a lot of on the podcast in the past, which is to say advertisements. We're committed to keeping content on Lawfare free and available to all, but we do have to pay the bills. Some of you have expressed interest in hearing the podcasts with no advertisements, so we've set up a way for you to do that as well. If you sign up to support our Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare, you can get access to the ad-free Lawfare podcast feed. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. By the way, you also get access to our Lawfare live events, which we do weekly. So it's your choice. You can have the Lawfare podcast free with ads, or you can support us at patreon.com slash lawfare and hear this podcast and future podcasts with no ads at all. And so what this law ultimately aims to do is to be a culmination of that, that reform and to, with respect to serious crimes, to take those entirely outside the discretion of the commander, not just when it comes to the current law under some of the more recent reforms, commanders can no longer... Um, you know, ignore findings or reduce sentences in, in cases of serious crimes. And what this would do is essentially attempt to professionalize the prosecution of all serious crimes in the armed forces. Again, driven by by the problem of sexual assault, but not limited to it, because I think lawmakers have taken the view that sexual assault is a serious crime, but some of the some of the defects, for example, that even that the army identified in the Fort Hood investigation are arguably professionalism defects in the investigation of all serious crimes. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for June 9th, 2021. For years, Congress and the Defense Department have debated how best to handle the pernicious problem of sexual assault in the military. Now, a bipartisan majority in the Senate appears to have settled on a set of reforms that would make unprecedented changes to the military justice system. But do these changes actually get at the root cause of the military's sexual assault problem? Or do they simply put at risk the command structure that is often seen as a pillar of military effectiveness? To discuss these issues, I sat down with legal expert Michelle Paradis, who teaches a course on the military and the law at Columbia Law School. Our conversation was part of Lawfare's weekly Lawfare Live series, which is usually only open to those who support Lawfare on Patreon. But we decided to open this discussion to the public and to share this lightly edited recording with our podcast listeners. Michelle and I talked about the impetus behind these latest reforms, what the consequences might be for the military justice system, and whether they promise to finally provide the protection against sexual assault that those serving in the military need and deserve. It's the Lawfare Podcast for June 9th, Michelle Paradis on sexual assault and reforming the military justice system. Michelle, let me come to you with the first question here. This push we see for this legislation is pretty notable because this is an issue that's been 
kind of on people's radar for many years. Senator Christine Gillibrand has been particularly a thought leader on this, really pushed a number of proposals over the years. And then we've seen these cycles of pushback where Congress takes kind of incremental steps saying, well, let's study this, let's look at this, but but without going so far as to take the step of actually implementing reforms. That seems to have changed this year. And a big part of the drive for it changing is the new context around this question of sexual assault in the military and the higher profile brought to it, particularly by one case, a really tragic case of Vanessa Guyen, a soldier whose murder uh, eventually that was uncovered and then led to a pretty scathing military report about military culture at, at a major military base, Fort Hood. Tell us a little bit about this case, what came out of that report and the way that's played into this drive for these sorts of reforms. Yeah, it's it, you know it isn't useful background because it was a watershed moment to deal with a, that sort of brought a lot of attention to a problem that, as you said, has been simmering for really thirty years at this point uh, since the tailhook scandals in the early nineteen nineties. You know, and it's and it's such a tragic case uh, as the cases that bring public attention often are. Bess again was a um, uh, an army specialist at Fort Hood. She had been subjected to a fair bit of stalking and harassment by uh, another specialist whose name I don't remember, and no one should remember this this guy's name, because, and he ultimately did murder her and for dismembered her body uh, for two months. No one knew where she was. And it was only, it only sort of came to light afterwards. And the army conducted a pretty comprehensive review. She also has, you know, a very, in addition to just being an incredibly sympathetic story, a very active family uh, who, who made sure that attention was brought to her murder and uh, really advocated. And so the army took it seriously and did a comprehensive investigation of of what had happened, not only why, for example, it had taken so long to find her her body and just the investigative failures that the, the army points out there, but the ultimate culture that led to her murder and what the army described in, in pretty blistering terms um, in a report this past December was a command culture that was not only permissive of sexual harassment, but almost, you know, where sexual harassment was insidious and kind of makes sexual assault, the, the kind of criminality we ultimately saw tragically happen in Guyane's case, almost inevitable. Even if, you know, crimes weren't being committed every day, there was an atmosphere in which this kind of, frankly, misogyny uh, was just tolerated. And I think that did, as you said, create a an impetus. And, and it's an impetus largely born of frustration by lawmakers because, you know, certainly for the past 30 years, but really in earnest, uh, as you said, by given uh, Senator Gillibrand's leadership, you know, for the past 10 years, the military has spent enormous amounts of energy resources, uh, has endured a lot of scrutiny for the problem of sexual assault, particularly amongst women, but not exclusively among women in the armed forces. And so, you know, I, I think there was one general accounting office study just last year or the year before that estimated that there are currently 161 different legal requirements that the military is currently obliged to uh, to follow, whether or not it's in the military justice system, reporting, providing support and care, opportunities for um, uh, essentially like welfare and, and training uh, for service members to try and combat sexual assault. And it seems to all be for naught. And it's not just the particular, again, tragedy of Vanessa Guyen's case. Uh, there's statistics to back it up, uh, because really for the past uh, a little more than a decade, the military has been really studying this problem with a lot, you know, with a lot of energy and, and interest. It's not for a lack of trying uh, or a cynicism or not an unwillingness to take the problem seriously, even within the military. But over the past decade, despite all of this investment, the sexual assault rate that women experience on a given year is about 5%. And that's extraordinary. That, that's an extraordinarily high rate of uh, sexual assault that, you know, the, that women in the armed forces confront. And to just kind of put that in a couple, you know, put that in perspective, 
if a woman serves the 20 years that it takes to retire from the armed forces with full retirement, a 5% rate of annual rate of sexual assault means she has almost a statistical guarantee of, of being sexually assaulted in some way during her time in service. And that's just unacceptable. Uh, it's unacceptable, you know, for the obvious moral reasons uh, for the victims, but it's also driving away highly qualified women who would otherwise want to serve if they feel that the armed forces are unwilling to protect them when they're being asked to ultimately sacrifice their lives in service to the country. That statistic is one that I hadn't encountered before prior to your piece, and it's absolutely astounding for that exact reason you know, particularly when you think about the risk that female service members are undertaking on top of the risk of military service just every year that they're continuing in service. It, it, it underscores the immense bravery and sacrifice that they're taking with that level of personal risk. Now, this latest proposal, uh, S-1520, I will refer to it that way, as it has a very long, cumbersome, boring name about military law reform is an interesting law in part because it approaches the sexual assault prosecution problem, which has been the focus of prior efforts, through a bit of a broader lens, looking at serious crimes. How did the aperture of reform expand from sexual assault to this broader category of serious crimes, which includes murder and a lot of other, what you, what you think of as serious crimes, the, the, the kind of stereotypical violent crimes um, that often occur that you would think of in civilian justice, at least? Sure. So, you know, the basic structure of the military justice system going back, you know, to, to jolly old England has, has been a, essentially what's called a command centric or command driven model where military justice's primary purpose has never really been justice. It's been discipline. And so the power to send a subordinate to a court martial has always been treated as essentially a, a lesser included incident of the ability to flog a subordinate or shoot them on sight um, with your sidearm as as was a little more, thankfully, traditional hundreds of years ago. But the court, so the court martial system has always been built around this idea that the commander is responsible for subordinates and therefore responsible for punishing subordinates for violations of good order and discipline and military law. And under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, since which was enacted in 1950, that includes a lot of ordinary crimes, including extremely serious crimes, everything from, you know, sexual assault crimes, which are the the main impetus for the legislation, but also murder, theft, you know, really any federal or state crime can in some way or another be prosecuted in the armed forces through the court martial system. And so over the past 10 years, um, one of the particular targets of uh, congressional efforts at reform, driven by the sexual assault problem, but as you said, sort of widening the aperture, has been the uh, perceived defects in this command-centric system that has existed, again, for time immemorial, but creates, in lawmakers' view, a kind of perverse incentive. Because if a commander, uh, for example, deems someone who has been charged with a serious crime as you know, highly necessary to uh, a particular mission they're carrying out, it historically allowed commanders a lot of opportunities for favoritism. And there was a understanding that this was potentially creating a lot of perverse incentives, particularly around crimes like sexual assault, which you know, not, not just in the military, but I think even in the regular criminal justice system, it's very often difficult to get law enforcement to take as seriously as they should. And so over the course of the past decade, Congress has targeted the military justice system and targeted the amount of discretion that commanders have to show leniency to subordinates in order to check against the risk that commanding officers are in some way or another going to uh, show favoritism to a subordinate who has committed a crime, including sexual assault, and therefore subvert, I think some would say, the justice aspect of military justice. And so what this law ultimately aims to do 
is to be a culmination of that that reform and to with respect to serious crimes to take those entirely outside the discretion of the commander not just when it comes to the current law under some of the more recent reforms commanders can no longer um you know ignore findings or reduce sentences in in cases of serious crimes and what this would do is essentially attempt to professionalize the prosecution of all serious crimes in the armed forces again driven by by the problem of sexual assault but not limited to it because i think lawmakers have taken the view that sexual assault is a serious crime but some of the some of the defects for example that even that the army identified in the fort hood investigation are arguably professionalism defects in the investigation of all serious crime and so that simply focusing exclusively on sexual assault offenses and trying to create a special system entirely around sexual assault offenses you know may just be not adequate to solving the broader problems of sort of having a much more professionalized military justice system in the trial and investigation just as importantly of um serious crimes and so what the current law would do is move serious crimes um those are explicitly defined but they're the kind of crimes you would see in any criminal code right it's not only sexual assault but theft murder uh certain dr- drug crimes i'm sure would fall into them although i i would want to double check that now that i said that out loud so don't don't quote me on the drug crimes but most serious crimes victim oriented crimes are now going to be under the new law both investigated and ultimately prosecuted and the decision to prosecute being will be made not by the individuals the, the accused commander in the chain of command it will no longer be treated essentially as just a violation of the disciplinary regulations um it will be treated as a criminal justice matter and a separate unit like in a US attorney's office like a district attorney's office will be set up in the military uh for the purpose of investigating and prosecuting serious crimes So this bill another reason why it's really notable is because of the political dynamics around it. We have seen a really interesting coalition of senators come around the version of the bill introduced in the Senate. I don't think companion legislation has been introduced in the House yet, but I could be wrong on that. But on the Senate side we've seen Senator Ted Cruz on the political right side come out in favor Senator Gillibrand as well has been very vocal on this and a whole a strong coalition with multiple co-sponsors as you note in your piece. But that dynamics kind of interesting because this proposal is still very controversial among many people particularly people with a background in military criminal justice or the military justice system I should say and most notably uh there was a report that was required by the defense department in the last round of legislation that essentially defense department came out with a report that was pretty strongly opposed to this idea what are the big objections uh that people have to this sort of reform and how is this political coalition responding to them if they are or are they essentially saying yes but we're going to do it anyway so so when it comes to matters of politics i only know what i know from the newspapers but the yeah there there's an extremely broad essentially filibuster proof coalition behind this reform proposal just in terms of co-sponsors i think it's up now to about 65 co-sponsors but there are you know significant critics of the reform proposal uh not the least the the chair and ranking member of the armed services committee which is currently the the custodian of the bill so that certainly i you know again i'm not a i'm not a political analyst so i'm not going to pretend to understand what happens in the senate but i think that certainly suggests that the seeming unanimity of support is uh potentially more apparent than real and that the bill may still have some obstacles to clear before it becomes law the the basic objections of the critics i think fall into into three buckets and and these are pretty well covered in that report you mentioned that the DOD issued in September which was vehemently opposed to any reform like this but those those 
critiques basically fall into three broad categories. One is that it violates tradition. And the military is a very much tradition-bound organization, and therefore anything that compromises something that the military has literally done since the founding should be at best looked at with considerable skepticism. So I would say that's sort of a, a one category of we've always done it this way, and we should be allowed to continue to do it this way, because that's you know an important principle in, a, in an organization that takes tradition as seriously as the military does. Second is, um, you know, a legal objection, or at least a legal caution. And, and, and it's not an unreasonable one. And it's that this, this scheme of military justice that has existed for time immemorial has survived a lot of constitutional challenge and a lot of legal scrutiny. And so uh, fundamentally changing the basic architecture of the military justice system is apt to weaken the uh, legal foundations of the system, potentially uh, make convictions one, you know, by these special prosecutors subject to, to constitutional challenge. I think there are non-trivial arguments about that. It certainly is an entirely different organization of the military justice system than the Supreme Court has traditionally signed off on. But I think contrary to that, Congress has traditionally been given incredible deference, especially since the 1980s, by the Supreme Court in how it thinks the military justice system and the general personnel aspects of the military should be organized. And so would such a challenge uh, to the system have a lot of traction in the Supreme Court? I, I think anyone who tells you one way or another is trying to sell you something. Um, I think it's the, the Supreme Court has traditionally been incredibly deferential, but uh, the law will be in some ways breaking new ground in terms of, again, the basic legal foundations and rationales for the military justice system. And I think the third bucket of criticism, which again, these are all related, but I, I, I do think it's you know a discrete argument that gets made, is that you know, the traditions about command discipline are there for a reason. And it's that commanders should have and should be understood by their subordinates to have literally the power of life and death over them. Because when they're in battle and being told to, you know, go take a hill in which their lives, their lives will very much be at risk, that, that's a kind of cultural understanding that a service member needs to, to have. No, no rational person would accept the catch-22. That's the point of the catch-22. So you need to inculcate a, a culture of obedience, a culture of authority. And, and so on the one hand, it has a very important sort of disciplinary character. And I think related to that, the, the critics of reform would say, and that also that commanders actually do take the lives and well-being of their subordinates, including their f female subordinates, seriously. And that it is, in a sense, insulting to a commanding officer who not only has the power of life and death over the subordinates, but the responsibility of life and death over the subordinates, to just assume that they are willy-nilly disregarding the welfare of 15% of the U.S. military's population um, when it comes to allegations of sexual assault. And in support of that, they would look, they would point to you know certain statistics, uh, and, and uh, including a recent study that I, I think was released as recently as October, uh, if my memory is correct where there was a, essentially an effort to do a, a, an evaluation of sexual assault cases that had been subject to some kind of military investigation. And then what was the disposition of them? Um, were, were the individuals sent to court-martial? And if they were sent to court-martial, were they convicted? And um, I think there are, you know, there are, are methodological issues that, that make this study, I think, not bulletproof to criticism. But the basic finding they, they, they sort of put forward, the bottom line finding, was that they agreed with commander's decisions not to punish in about 98% of cases in which commanders didn't punish. And that, uh, to the contrary, the, the, the participants in the study uh, determined that 
if anything, commanders were being far too profligate in referring subordinates to court martial on sexual on weak sexual assault cases because the conviction rates were were reflecting that. Um, I think they said about thirty percent of the sexual assault cases that commanders had sent uh, to court martial in the fiscal year that was used for the purpose of analysis um, essentially shouldn't have been because they didn't result in a conviction. Um, I think those. Conclusions in the methodology are, again, are subject to challenge, but I think the critics of the bill would point to studies like that to say that reforming the military justice system is not the way that, given its other potential costs to the structure and culture of the of the military, that it, it's not the way of solving the sexual assault problem, um, which has been the primary impetus for, for creating these reforms to the military justice system. Well, that actually is the perfect tee up uh, to our first question. Thank you so much. What's your what's your uh, question for Michelle? It's good to see you again. You mentioned earlier in your article, began your article citing the, the statistics that hadn't changed in a, in a number of decades on on uh, sexual assault. Has the military been been able to reduce any of the other so called serious crimes while maintaining this command structure prerogative on uh, whether to to go ahead with uh, with prosecutions? Um, so, you know, I, I, they don't keep the statistics for the same way um, for other crimes. Uh, sexual assault has been, you know, a, a specific category of focus because, you know, of its civil rights implications, if nothing else. So the, the military justice system, to be perfectly frank, the military justice system's bread and butter is not um, made up of a lot of serious crimes. Um, you know, that's in part because service members generally self-select out of the, the ordinary criminal populations that tend to fill the civilian courts. They certainly do happen. Um, but they, for example, numbers of murders that are prosecuted um, in the military justice system are, are vanishingly small compared to the civilian justice system, for example. The kinds of crimes that do get prosecuted, you know, I, I, are, are often actually um, crimes that might not be prosecuted in the civilian justice system. So um, and one category of those would be certain categories of sexual assault crimes. So anyone who sort of looks at the basic statistics of what gets prosecuted at various percentages in the military finds that. You know, the, the, the incidence of child and spousal abuse yeah. uh, and child pornography are astronomical relative to the relative proportion uh, that those kinds of crimes tend to uh, tend to tend, you tend to see in the civilian justice system. Um, but a, a big part of that is because the military is a very intimate place. And so it's, you know, people's computers get searched a lot. I'm sure that's another uh, issue that lawfare would be happy to cover on on Fourth Amendment grounds. But getting away with things like uh, spousal abuse, child abuse, and, and child pornography is actually just a lot harder in the military because you're subject to so much more um, surveillance. So a lot of the actual criminal docket in the military justice system tends to get dominated by those cases. They're not dominated, but there's a large prevalence of it in the military justice system. Thank you for for, for mentioning domestic violence, because that was sort of my sort of test case to sort of say, have they been you know, more successful in domestic violence than they have on, on sort of combating sexual assault. And it sounds like they have. Um, well, there, you know, I mean, it's, it's I, I don't know that it's much better or worse um, than you would see in the civilian justice system, because a lot of, you know, I mean, I think there are traditional obstacles to prosecuting sexual assault and even domestic violence type cases that any prosecutor will confront in persuading a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is guilty. And I think we just uh, take a few popular examples, whether or not it's the prosecution of Bill Cosby, uh, or Harvey Weinstein, uh, we can see that even in the civilian justice system, 
prosecutors will not move forward even when they have very good evidence um, against particular perpetrators. And so I think you're going to see some of that same thing. The, I, one of the great big secrets about um, the military is that the, the military is just like us. Um, it's a pretty clear, uh, close reflection of the rest of the country in, in most of the rest, in most ways. And, and that includes in the criminal justice system, uh, both its positives and negatives, to be perfectly frank. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Let me go ahead and read you uh, his first question here, which you touched on a little bit, but I think it's worth getting at and maybe expanding on a little bit. You get at this in your article for Lawfare. Given that the data shows that women are 51% more likely to be sexually assaulted in civilian colleges where civilian prosecutors have authority, I, I don't know if that's accurate, but that's, that's Charlie's statistic here, uh, but I believe it, than in the military. Do you think that military prosecutors will have more success than the dismal record of their civilian counterparts? Is it possible to prosecute our way out of the sexual assault issue? Did that work the, with the problem of America's drug abuse? Uh, so, so there are a couple of different questions embedded in there, um, but I'll, I'll take what I, I basically gather to be the thrust of it. Is, is, is reform to the criminal justice system sufficient to combat the uh, prevalence of sexual assault? If, if with this reform in place, will we see that 5% annual number go down? I think you could say we can be hopeful. I think so. One, one potential methodological criticism I might have with the study from October uh, that was released in October about you know, how, how prosecutorial discretion is currently being exercised is, you know, there is something to be said for highly professionalized military prosecutors and investigators um, who are trained well on building cases uh, around sexual assault more effectively. You know, I think one of the, one of the, again, global issues that the military justice system always confronts is that most line prosecutors, the people actually going into court uh, to bring cases are going to be pretty junior. Um, the military, you know, if, if you're in the JAG Corps for more than 10 years, um, you're more likely to be in a supervisory position than you are to be a line prosecutor. And that is different. Um, and so I think if you did create a system where, for example, military prosecutors were heavily trained and were following all the best practices, could you see the, for example, conviction rates go up from that 30% that that study um, that that study offered. Um, I, I think you could. Will that have an effect on the overall incidents and the kind of command culture problems that, for example, the Army identified in the Fort Hood investigation? I think we have to be at least somewhat, you know, clear-eyed about that. Um, criminal justice is one tool of accountability uh, in terms of preventing 
preventing criminality and encouraging better behavior. If a um, if command climate under, is influenced by the idea that there are these freestanding military prosecutors out there who are highly trained in jonesing to prosecute any allegation of sexual assault as competently as humanly possible, will that have an effect on individual command climates? It's an empirical question. I think you could make a certain logical argument for it, but is it going to be a silver bullet? You know, we, as, as Charlie says, you know, we have drug laws and people still violate the drug laws all the time. And there is something I think unusually difficult about sexual assault cases, about proving them up to the satisfaction of a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that is going to be inherent. Um, they're the kind of crimes where very often you have a he said, she said sort of uh, battle of the evidence. I think there's also just the basic demographic fact that so long as women are only 15% of the armed forces uh, on any given uh, panel of a military jury called the members, you know, you you might get one or two women on your panel of members just, just by statistics. And so will military prosecutors have a lot more success? Will that have the deterrent effect that lawmakers intended to have? Uh, if the reform passes, I hope it does, because I think the sexual assault problem is incredible. And it's incredible how much has been spent to achieve so little in trying to solve it. I think there are other, I, I propose some of these in the piece, actually. Um, I think other reforms complementing the military justice reforms, I think, would make a lot of sense, particularly given the evidentiary problems. I'm happy to go into those now, but the, the one that I think is probably the most significant and easiest to do, um, both as a legal and practical matter, would be to simply create an exception to what's sometimes called the Ferries Doctrine or intramilitary immunity, um, which allows service, which essentially currently bars service members from suing the government or anyone else in the military for anything that happened to them while they were serving in the military in all but uh, a few narrow exceptions that Congress added I think, a year or two ago involving medical malpractice. And I think dealing, looking at those kind of victim-directed opportunities for accountability, it may be a way of augmenting and supporting any reforms that Congress does to the criminal justice system to ensure that they're effective. Because at the end of the day, you're always going to be stuck with beyond a reasonable doubt. And any, anyone who's looked at the efforts to combat sexual assault in the ordinary criminal justice system confronts these problems. And I think if we look to how, for example, the Me Too movement has succeeded in the civilian world, uh, it's been not through necessarily criminal prosecutions. There have been some high profile ones like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby um, eventually. But I, I think a lot of the, the real momentum was able to move forward through the civil process um, through lawsuits, which are, you know, allow victims not only to have an opportunity for accountability, uh, they allow an opportunity for uh, discovery to bring sunlight into situations that might otherwise be insulated from review. And you're also dealing with far lower standards of proof, right? It's 50% plus one, as opposed to the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. So Charlie raises another interesting question here, although I'm going to reframe it a little bit. Char Charlie's question was, do you think that we are seeing the end result of the fact that we now have the fewest number of people in Congress with military experience, which which uh, I think makes an assumption about who's supporting this and why necessarily? I guess my question for you is, of those uh, senators that we know who either have military experience or have ties to the military, of course, you know, Senator Kane, very involved in military issues, both because of his, the fact that the state of Virginia has a large military presence and because his son is in the military. Other senators have similar ties. How has the individual ties with the military played into this? Is Are people who see themselves as voices for the military been stronger proponents of or opponents of, or 
also recognize you may not be tracking the politics that closely, so you may not know. Um, in, in fairness, I'm not. I don't track the politics that, that carefully. I, I look at this as a you know a, as a legal scholar, and so I actually don't even really take a position on the reform. I, I you know I can tell you about it and what it hopes to do and and potential pitfalls. But you know, is it a good idea? I think that's a discretionary judgment for lawmakers. I think the fact that the 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 chair and the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee, Senate Armed Services Committee, have come out at least critical, if not vehemently opposed in Senator Inhofe's case to it. I think, it, you know, I mean, I, can that be correlated with individual military experience? Potentially. I, I'm not going to write that off as a critique. But but I also I, I also just think there is, I think the main driver is less this, is less the military-civilian divide in Congress, the civil-military relations question, and more just frustration. You know, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, Congress has spent, in, you know, human lives in terms of hours uh, investigating, holding hearings, legislating. Um, millions and millions and millions of dollars and man hours are spent uh, in the Department of Defense trying to combat and lower the prevalence of sexual assault. And and just when you keep looking at the same numbers over and over again, that's going to instill an incredible amount of frustration, particularly when you have incredibly tragic faces attached to um, the consequences of the military's failure to really figure out a way of, of combating sort of the toxic cultures that the Army identified in places like Fort Hood. And, and I, I would also say, though, in the, in the Department of Defense's defense um, is they do take it very seriously. Like this is not, uh, you know, I mean, it's not like this is just done for show, for Congress, for, for the media. You know, having, having worked in the Department of Defense, you know, for, for basically the entirety of that decade, I've been able to see just the amount of visibility, the outreach that's consistently done to, you know, the military personnel who, who work in the in the Department of Defense to let them know that there are um, protective services, reporting services. Um, there's an individual dedicated, you know, at least for every command uh, whose sole job or at least one of their major duties is being the point of contact for any issues involving sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, so the, the military is spending a lot of energy to try and combat this problem in good faith and attempting to keep just adding new reporting requirements, you know, I think is people are tired of doing that. They, they want to take bolder action. And that's what's led to this point, whether or not it's a good or bad idea. Again, I'm not taking a particular uh, position on, on this particular legislative approach, but I, I can certainly understand the, the desire to do something that will be more dramatic and more effective to address what are clear weaknesses in the system. Let me go ask you another question, because you got to, into a really interesting aspect of this legislation in your proposals that I think has gotten a little less attention and I think maybe of interest to a lot of lawfare people who think a lot about international law uh, side of this and how this intersects, uh, how variety of issues intersect with that. And that is this question about war crimes prosecution. Just flesh that out for us a little bit. Why does this law pose a potential problem around war crime prosecutions, particularly uh, in regards to U.S. international legal obligations, and what are ways that the law might be adjusted to account for that? Sure. So I, I don't think the law is interested or anyone writing the, the, the current draft of the legislation, which is circulating, you know, was even thinking about war crimes. But it, it is a pretty significant aspect of the military justice system, even if it's an incredibly small aspect of it by, by the numbers. And, and the basic issue comes up with, you know, certainly since the Hague Conventions in 1907, but, but really going back to the founding, the, the, the idea of responsible command, um, which is an international law requirement, all, all military forces must operate under a responsible command. The word responsible has been defined for, at least again, since the founding of the United States, as the ability to prevent and to punish subordinates for violating the laws of armed conflict. And 
in the United States, that matters a lot you know, in, in, the, in the current military justice system, because we actually don't, as a rule, prosecute service members for war crimes as such. I, I really looked hard and I couldn't find any clear examples where, for example, the uh, special authorities dealing with law of war jurisdiction under articles, what are called Articles 18 and 21 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice have ever been used. Ordinarily, what happens is a service member who, for example, murders civilians in the context of an armed conflict gets prosecuted not with the war crime of targeting protected persons, but with murder uh, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And the way that the current proposal is structured, all of that jurisdiction over serious crimes, most many of which are used as the vehicles with which to prosecute our own service members' war criminality, are transferred away from the direct uh, supervisory command of, the, uh, uh, of their field commander, uh, for example, in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever U.S. forces find themselves deployed, and is given over to these centralized U.S. attorneys, department, district attorney's offices. And that's important to, to recognize that that's a pretty big shift and, and, and at least a diminution of the commander's traditional power and reciprocal, again, duty and obligation to punish subordinates who violate the laws of armed conflict. Um, a lot of our law of war practice has been built around the idea that our commanders are in, in essence personally responsible for the conduct of their subordinates to include even, you know, something called command responsibility, which many of your, you know, many listeners to this are probably familiar with, which is the idea that a commander can even be held criminally responsible for failing to punish a subordinate or taking effective action to punish a subordinate. Now, um, after I posted, but as you know, I was fully aware of this too, as I was writing, as I, as I write in the piece, no, no specific type of criminal justice system is required under international law. And our, many of our allies have either no criminal military justice system or have a military justice system very much modeled along the lines of the current reforms. And so there's nothing per se wrong with having um, military prosecutors sort of deal with war crimes as well. And arguably, it could even be advantageous because, you know, all of the conflict of interest type issues that have led Congress to think, you know, sexual assault cases are not being dealt with sufficiently seriously could easily be, you know, you could make a very similar argument for the prosecution of war crimes committed against enemy individuals. Uh, just look at the pardons, for example, that Donald Trump issued. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that the system as proposed is clearly in violation of international law, but it just is a pretty big sea change of how U.S. military law of war doctrine has been understood and implemented, um, really going back through our entire the entirety of our history. And there are even features of the law that I point out that could actually almost prevent a commander um, under what are doctrines like command unlawful command influence, which generally prevent commanders from putting their thumb on the scale in a prosecution that arguably, and again, if I was representing someone charged in one of these cases, I would certainly make a big point of trying to argue uh, that a commander who you know tried to make an example out of a subordinate who was committing atrocities against Afghan civilians, because that's, again, morally wrong, a violation of the laws of armed conflict, but also disastrous from a, a counterinsurgency standpoint. If I'm trying to you know pacify a, a town in Afghanistan and I, I can't effectively punish someone who is who's committing crimes against the local population, that's a problem. And so I simply pointed out that this is not something the law addresses, but really does need to address. And, I, and I, there are a lot of ways you can do it. One is just being very explicit that commanders still have some kind of concurrent authority over the prosecution of war crimes to direct the prosecution of their subordinates. I think that's a, certainly an easy uh, fix that doesn't undermine any of the objectives of the law. And if anything, it would enhance them. And, and similar, or similarly, just putting much more robust reporting requirements in to make sure that commanders 
um, if that we're going to move to a, essentially a professionalized prosecutorial system that commanders have a really strict obligation to send cases to those prosecutors and that that you know that the commander's effort to see if subordinate prosecuted is not, will not be treated as unlawful influence that that just needs to be ironed out with specificity because oftentimes the devil is in the details and you and you definitely don't want to create you know uh, accountability problems in something as serious as the law of war well let me turn back to another question here uh, also from charlie although it's got an endorsement from uh, some of our other audience members asking following up on a specific point of yours regarding what i have always called the Ferez doctrine but i believe you called the Ferez doctrine uh, <laughs> we, we should get we should get an expert on that i heard that i was like oh my gosh have i been saying this wrong this whole time because i've definitely said it out loud on TV and in the radio before. Um, but if your Ferez or Ferry's proposal, is it just for sexual assault cases or all torts? And maybe and maybe lay back out that proposal a little bit in case people skipped over it, because uh, I want to make sure I didn't recall exactly right. It, it would, you know, the, I guess my, in suggesting it, there are other ways that could be done, and I suggest some of those in the piece too. I think the simplest might be something like, we'll just call it intramilitary immunity reform, would just be to look at, you know, you could limit it to sexual assault cases, but the basic point would be to put service members on equal footing with other federal employees, because as much as the armed services are really different, um, you know, the Supreme Court tends to refer to it as the separate society, and there's a lot to that. It is also just a government workplace. And a lot of the, you know, sub-criminal problems of sexual harassment exist in the workplace. That's really what the Army focused on in Fort Hood. And the limited tools the military has to combat that kind of more, again, workplace uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment environment can often lead to much more serious crimes down the road. It, it creates that environment that the army found so troubling. So you could create a very simple uh, exception to the intra-military immunity doctrine to simply allow um, service members to act as any other civilian employee would, where they have to exhaust uh, potentially either with the EEOC or the comparable offices in the Department of Defense. And having done so, uh, can then take their cases to federal court, having exhausted their military remedies. You could you could tighten that up to make sure that they had gone to, for example, the individual prosecutor's office, and that there's been a, essentially a non-prosecution decision. The prosecution is infeasible. You could you could put all sorts of constraints on it. But I think simply giving the victims of sexual assault an avenue for accountability that that's not necessarily in the hands of a third party who may not have their best interests entirely at heart. I think is a very simple way of just creating a, a you know, a, a, if nothing else, a backstop for the kind of accountability mechanisms that that Congress is trying to impose through the criminal justice system with the current legislation. Okay, we have another question here from Philip who asked me to read it out loud for him. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to put it to you squarely just to make sure we answer on answer it uh, most directly. If persons are not frequently, if at all, prosecuted for war crimes under the current system, why does it matter if the decision maker is changed from the commander to a military prosecution authority? Would this remove the commander conflict of interest, which might lead them not to prosecute war crimes to their troops? Um, so I wouldn't necessarily agree that service members are not prosecuted for war crimes. Um, I think the United States, certainly compared to a lot of our NATO allies even, um, actually has a pretty good record on prosecuting our, our subordinates. It's by no means perfect. And please do not you know, treat me as an apologist uh, for some of the, the real you know, defects that sometimes have been exhibited over the past, for example, 20 years and or even you know, going back to the, the My Lai massacre cases. But we have had this tradition of prosecuting our subordinates that can get short-circuited for political reasons, like as, as we saw uh, with the former president. But I, I would actually take exception to the idea that our, we're somehow unusually willing, unwilling to uh, prosecute 
uh, our subordinates for war crimes. I, th- I think it's something the military actually does take quite seriously and has done in a number of cases. And some of those uh, service members have served incredibly long sentences and are continuing to serve incredibly long sentences uh, for atrocities perpetrated against, for example, Iraqi civilians. Thank you. And I, I will note in the chat, uh, Chris said that the Fer- Ferris Doctrine is pronounced Ferris. Uh, so we're both a little bit off okay. Ferris Doctrine, which I feel better about knowing. And he seems he seems to be very familiar with it. So I will defer to Chris on that. So Charlie actually has a few other questions. I'm going to lump together because I think they get at a critique that's underlying a little bit of this. That's that's that that builds off a kind of um, parade of horribles concern that you often get with changing long established patterns. He asks, do you think we ought to have a specialized sexual assault defense organization with equivalent resources as this proposed prosecutorial sort of body? And similarly, if military commanders aren't deemed competent enough to make disciplinary decisions in serious legal cases, should we also outsource controlling decisions on targeting, like on a law of war, to could of JAGs or civilian lawyers? You know, in the latter one, obviously, conflict of interest arrangements different there. So the fact pattern is a little different. But I, my sense is, uh, and I think Charlie being deliberately provo- provocative because that Charlie is, is a specialty of Charlie's. I'm sure he won't mind me asking. Uh, he always <laughs> asks provocative questions. And on this one, though, I, I take it to be a little bit of, is this a beginning of a slippery slope? If we start moving away from the command structure being such a fundamental pillar, are we going to be introducing weaknesses into the chain of command that is really the fundamental pillar of our military system, most military systems, and ultimately our military effectiveness? Uh, what, what is your sense of that, Michelle? So I, I would say, you know, I mean, not to dodge the question, but it is an empirical question. You know, I think you know, looking to allied nations around the world who have a separate military justice system uh, that's not part of their command, I wouldn't necessarily say that they cease to function effectively as militaries, whether or not it's the French or the um, uh, or the Canadians. Or I, I actually don't know that the French still maintain a military uh, a military justice system, but certainly the British and the Canadians maintain one, and it's entirely separate from the chain of command. The Israelis, for example, also have an entirely separate military justice system. Judge advocates in the military actually don't even report to the Minister of Defense. They report to the Attorney General. So it's an entirely, you know, it's military, but it's entirely done in parallel. So, you know, will 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 Rome fall if if we adopt this proposal? Um, I, again, I think it's an empirical question. I think there are comparators. Uh, but I, what I would say on the other side is that those armed forces, as important allies as they are, as important as a lot of the work they do is, has nothing compared to the scale of operations of the United States Armed Forces, uh, just in terms of its global reach, uh, the number of commitments it has, just the the sheer administrative burden of you know managing almost 1.5 million uh, men and women under arms. It's, it's, it is, as the Supreme Court often says, a separate society in ways that foreign armed forces uh, are simply not due to scale. And so does disrupting something that fundamental, you know, create a a weak point, you know, in, in an organization that's that large and has that many commitments. I think it's not irrational to point that out, certainly. Um, I, I'm not, Charlie is not an irrational person, and so I wouldn't accuse him of that. Um, I think it's certainly a concern worth airing. And I guess the question is, you know, always going to be one of of costs versus benefits in, in making the assessment of whether or not um, the risks of, of weakening the, the direct command authority over all prosecutions is worth the, the benefits of having a more professional military justice system operating as a check against command climates that may not want that check, to be honest, whether or not it's Fort Hood or anywhere else. Could you imagine a system where, for example, there's concurrent authority um, with a commander, where a commander will have some power to convene, but also there's a concurrent power 
um, that's operated. You could imagine that as well. But again, I, I not to dodge the question, but I think it's ultimately an empirical question and, and reasonable minds can very much differ about it. So uh, in the chat, um, he, his fundamental question is he notes that um, there are lots of reasons sexual assault cases. I, I, he, let me just read this part out loud. The reform assumption is that commanders are not bringing merited cases to trial. However, that, that's sure that's the case. First, there are many reasons reports of sexual assault do not result in fictions unrelated to command willingness. The most obvious is not participating victims or victims who prefer other forms of disposition. Second, my experience has been the opposite. Overzealous prosecution and command bringing weak cases. Couldn't one result of placing the prosecution's decision is the hands of military lawyers be fewer prosecutions? Executions. You talk about this possibly in your piece, noting the you know survey that people did of these prosecution decisions where you saw a lot of agreement by this independent panel, uh, like 98, 99%. But I think it gets this fundamental question, is that, is this actually a solution to the sexual assault problem? Uh, do we have reason to believe it will? And if it's if it's not, do the people who, see, who, who have been pushing for this issue, are, are they going to have to come back for another array of options and policy proposals that really get at that issue, even if this reform goes through? So, I, again, I would be very cautious about describing this as any kind of silver bullet um, to the sexual assault problem for all of those reasons. And, that, and that's actually one of the reasons I said to, to make this kind of reform where you're trying to, in essence, eradicate the, the problem of conflict of interest, where a commander essentially does not have a meaningful check on allowing cultures of, you know, where sexual and gender discrimination are so pervasive that sexual assault becomes endemic, that you you should backstop that with other non-criminal justice oriented processes. Um, reforming the Ferris doctrine, um, I think, is the easiest way in terms of just using existing institutions. The legislation could be quite short; it would be probably a sentence long to to achieve that. Uh, there are other ways, though. You could create, you know, in much more robust internal uh, administrative panels. Uh, I know one of the things Charlie points out is, you know, the prevalence of sexual assault in universities. And, you know, again, just as a, a legal observer, there is a, certainly over the past 10 years, um, there has been a vast expansion of, you know, Title IX administration in universities that includes not only the kind of things the armed forces are doing, such as you know, reporting and and welfare support and other, you know, I mean, other things directly, you know, in, in place to help victims both have the opportunity to speak out, but also get the help they need. Um, but there's an entire essentially administrative process for the separation of, of students and the punishment of male students. It's, it's controversial. I mean, there, there are criticisms of it. I'm not terribly upset by it, but I understand the criticisms that has is essentially not a criminal justice system, right? It can't be. A university is running it. And so at Columbia, where we work, you know, if you are subject to an, an EO complaint, you're going to have, you know, various process rights. The allegations we brought against you and various administrative steps can be taken against you, whether or not you're a student or faculty member. Um, and that's a process that's separate from the, the dean of, for example, the law school where we work. It's a, you know, university-wide process. And so could the the existing procedures, which are pretty, frankly, weak in the military for that kind of sort of separate, uh, what you can think of almost as a human resources HR process. Um, I think those are available too. Uh, but I, I agree, sort of to give you a long answer to a short question, you know, I think lawmakers should be very cautious about thinking reforming the military justice system by itself will be this magic silver bullet. Um, will it potentially have salutary effects, for example, on influencing command cultures, uh, enhancing the training and capabilities of military prosecutors and the military justice system to to deal with sexual assault cases, which can be very difficult, for example, because of non-cooperative victims? Knowing how to deal with that as a prosecutor is, is something we struggle with in the civilian world, and we have specialized prosecutors to deal with that. Um, just to give you a sort of personal anecdote, 
my mother for for many years when she was a, a DA was essentially the the special uh, point person for dealing with crimes against children. And part of that was the fact that she was literally the only or one of the only women in the district attorney's office in the town in Allentown where I grew up. But she was able to bring a kind of competence and expertise and compassion and understanding and skill to that that other prosecutors couldn't. Um, and so will creating a kind of DA, uh, a DA's office or a U.S. attorney's office for the military allow that kind of expertise to be developed? You can hope. And, and that could be a, have a salutary effect on the, the overarching problem of sexual assault. All right. Well, we have one underlying rule at Lawfare Live, as Ben has reiterated to me time and time again, and that is that we end on time. Uh, and I am basically burning our last 30 seconds because I don't believe we have quite enough time to take another question in that period. <laughs> but uh, I will take this opportunity to say thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us. I think this was a fantastic conversation on a really important piece of legislation uh, that warrants more deep conversations and looks than you, like the one you've given it today. So thank you for sharing your insights with us and to Charlie and Chris and other people from the conversations for sharing your incredibly valuable insights and questions. Always useful way to get the conversation going. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. The discussion in this podcast was part of our weekly Lawfare Live series, which brings Lawfare writers and contributors together with readers who support Lawfare on Patreon to discuss some of the cutting issues of the day. To participate in future Lawfare Live discussions and receive other benefits of supporting Lawfare on Patreon, including ad-free feeds for this and other Lawfare podcasts, please visit www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.